This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au Well, good morning church. It is uh, great to see you here today. My name is Matt, lead pastor here at Anchor. just want to extend my welcome it is great to see you here at church this morning, especially if you're new, visiting, welcome. We love having new people at Anchor. We hope that you are blessed by being here this morning. Um, well, today we're, we're really kind of shifting gears a bit in uh, our journey through the book of Acts, and we've kind of walked pretty slowly through chapters 1 to 9, and from now on we're going to put the foot down a bit till we get to the end of Acts chapter 28. And so things are going to accelerate a little bit, and we're going to be reading in a much larger chunk. So I just want to encourage you as we go through the, the back end of the book of Acts for the next couple of weeks, well, maybe the next couple of months, um, I want to encourage you to read ahead. So, so read what's coming up so that you know, because we're not going to be able to read two, three chapters. In fact, I think we're going to go through eight chapters in the last sermon. We're not going to be able to read through that entire narrative on a Sunday morning together. So I want to encourage you to be reading Acts as we go over the next couple of weeks. But uh, look, this week has been a crazy week, has it not, in our world, with uh, our, our screens, our TVs, our social media feed have been flooded with the news, the shocking images of racism that came out of Charlottesville and images of racism even that have been in our own country, the loss of life, the violence. Racism is a destructive evil that completely damages and demeans people who are made in the image of God by claiming that one race is superior to another race. The one image bearer is more superior than another image bearer. And white supremacy or any form of racial supremacy is a demonic evil. And it is irreconcilable with the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. But the reality is it's not just the U.S. where we see this kind of stuff happening. I mean, I grew up in South Africa during the height of the apartheid movement of racial segregation. You would walk into any public building, there would be two doors. And above the two doors would be a sign, a sign that would say blankies and net blankies, which means whites and non-whites. Completely segregated. In fact, our own country, Australia, has its own history and sadly current story of racial segregation and racism. The world that we live in seems so divided along racial lines. And so we naturally ask the question, well, what hope is there? What hope is there for Australia? What hope is there for a country like the US? What hope is there for the tribal division that we see in North Africa? What hope is there? I want to suggest that the true message of the Christian faith, and I say true because there are so many horrid distortions of the Christian message that exist today, but the true message is the only hope because the gospel paints for us this picture, this beautiful picture of all ethnic backgrounds gathered together around the throne of grace and worshipping Jesus not divided along bloodlines, but united together by the blood of Jesus. You see, in the end, racism is antithetical to the message of the 
the, the Bible for two reasons. First is that all people, all people, every single person is made in the image of God. And secondly, the good news of the gospel is for all tribes, all tongues, all languages, all people groups. And so today what I want us to see is that the kingdom of God, the the very purposes that God has for his church and for this world is that he would gather all the peoples of the earth around the throne, around Jesus to worship him. That beautiful picture that we get from Revelation 5 and 7. And we're going to see the very moment that the gospel takes a giant leap over a ethnic barrier and moves towards the people outside of the ethnic grouping of the people of Israel. And so I'm going to pray for us. We're going to read Acts chapter 10. I'm going to read all of Acts chapter 10. It's going to be a long reading. So if you've got a Bible, go there. The verses will be on the screen behind me, but I'm going to pray and we're going to read this passage of Scripture, this powerful, significant passage of Scripture this morning. So let me pray to start. God, we thank you that you're a God who speaks to us. We thank you that you're a God who is relevant, that, that your message addresses the very circumstances of our world and our life. And God, as we read from Acts chapter 10 today and see this significant moment as the gospel crosses a huge cultural and ethnic division, God, we pray that that moment would inspire in us a vision for what it could look like to be a church that is a beautiful collection of people from all tribes, all tongues, all nations, gathered around Jesus, worshipping you for your glory. God, we pray that you would speak to us this morning. We ask it in the powerful name of Jesus. And those who agreed said, Amen. All right, Acts chapter 10, starting at verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel from God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? He said to him, Your prayers and your arms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called his two servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up to the house top about the sixth hour to pray and he became hungry and wanted something to eat but while he was preparing it but while they were preparing it he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending being let down from the four corners of the earth and in it were all creatures were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air and there came a voice to him rise Peter kill and eat But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing that was taken up at once to heaven. Now now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what this vision 
as to what the vision he had seen might mean. Behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry of Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering his vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one who you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to this house and hear what you have to say. So he invited them to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them, and he had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with them, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with, with or visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when he was sent for, he came without objection and I asked, why you sent for me? And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard. Your arms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, the tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once. And you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear what you have been commanded by the Lord. And so Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, everyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he has sent to Israel, preaching the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the, baptism of, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all people, but to us whom he had chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. 
And they asked him to remain for some days. Oh, that was a long reading. God has always had a plan that has encapsulated all of the nations. And we've seen that reality as you flick through the pages of Scripture almost from the very beginning. If you cast your minds back to the series that we started our year with as we journeyed with Abram, who became Abraham, you remember the promise that God gave Abram in Genesis 12, verse 3. He said, I will bless you. I will make you a great nation. And in verse 3, he said, In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And that promise gets restated time and time and time again in the Old Testament. In fact, in Genesis 22, 18, the promise is stated again, but instead of the word families, the word nations is used. That God has a plan a saving initiative that all the nations would be blessed from the very beginning. You see, in the end, Abraham is not chosen from the nations. He is actually chosen for the nations. And Abraham's people would eventually become Israel, the people of God. And God reminds Israel of their missional identity in 1 Kings, 1 Kings, Exodus, Exodus 19 Uh, verse 4 to 6, where he says to them that they are his treasured possession from among the nations, that they are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, that their holy living, their distinctive lifestyle ought to be a witness to the nations around them, that they know God, that Israel was to exercise this priestly duty of taking the law, taking taking. Um, the, the, the God of the Old Testament to the nations around them, that they would come to Zion, that they would come to Jerusalem, that they would worship Yahweh. That was, their, that was their responsibility to live as attractive beacons of light to the nations around them. In fact, it's the very same identity statement that Peter takes and applies to the church in 1 Peter 2.9. Or again, the psalmist echoes these promises and hopes. In Psalm 67, verse 1, it says this. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. It has always been God's intended purpose to gather people from all of the nations to worship him. Why? Because God is the creator. He is the one who has created all and all his creation ought to worship him. And I think Jesus understood the scope of these promises. You remember that Jesus, um, in Matthew 10, when he commissions the disciples to go and proclaim the good news, initially he says to them, don't go outside the lost sheep of Israel. The mission is constrained. But then when he gets to Matthew chapter 28 in the Great Commission, he says, Go, go to all the nations, not just the lost sheep of Israel. Go to all nations. In fact, the Apostle Paul in Galatians 3 verse 8 says that in Genesis 12, 
that promise that God makes to Abraham, in fact, is an early announcement of the gospel that the Gentiles would be included. You see, the plan of God is so significantly massive that from the very beginning, God's plans and purposes is that the good news would go to the ends of the earth. This isn't just something that turned up in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. This is something that God has been working out since the foundations of the earth, that all people would worship Him. And so this moment in Acts chapter 10 is significant This is a significant moment in salvation history as we see the good news crossing a geographic and cultural barrier. Now, to be fair, we've already seen a number of Gentiles, a number of people from the nations come to worship God. We've seen Rahab the prostitute. We've seen Ruth the Moabitess. In fact, we just saw a few weeks ago the Ethiopian eunuch who was explained the gospel by Philip. But this moment here is the moment that opens the floodgates for the Gentiles to come and worship Jesus. It's interesting as you consider the... um, the social climate that this took place in because there was significant animosity between the Jews and the Gentiles. If we thought the relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans was strained, the relationship between the Jews and the Gentiles was even more significantly strained. They considered them dogs. Dogs. Like that's a pretty derogatory word that is used in the Gospels to describe those people who are not part of the ethnic group called Jewish. In fact, there are some uh, ancient writings that describe that if a a Jew was to stumble across a a woman um, who was pregnant and in pain and suffering and needed help, that a, a Jew was not to help that woman. In fact, often if there was suffering or pain or infliction that was happening, a Jew was was told not to do anything to help that person. They would, do not, they would do everything. They would bend over backwards to avoid contact with someone who is considered ceremonially unclean. The only time that they would do that was if they needed to perform some sort of business with the Gentiles for the sake of money or transaction or trade. And at that point, then they would go and cleanse themselves of the filth that had contaminated them. The animosity between the Jews and the nations around them was... Thick and savage. And so in this moment, there is a real potential for significant division to enter into the church. We, we saw the same potential there in Acts chapter 8 as the Samaritans were included in. Would we see this schism, this division happen in the church? And again, in Acts chapter 10, that same thing is real here. This moment could be a, a significant moment of division. In the church, will the Gentiles be received? Will they be accepted? And so we enter into the story of Cornelius. And this is a significant moment. Alnado reminded us a couple of weeks ago that the Spirit really is the best missionary. That the mission of God, the mission that Jesus gave his church and his disciples is utterly dependent on the Spirit. And we see that happening here again. That the Spirit has been orchestrating these events. That the timing is perfect. The groundwork that has been laid in Cornelius' heart as he seeks after a God that he doesn't really know. 
God has been appointing these events perfectly so that they would line up the timing, the execution. The Spirit of God has been at work. He is the best missionary and the mission is utterly dependent on the Spirit. And so Cornelius, we're introduced to a brother. He is a seeker. He is a seeker. He is spiritually hungry, yet he is somewhat ignorant of the full truth. He's called a God-fearer and potentially maybe he attended the synagogue. He wouldn't have been allowed to enter into the the temple, maybe just the the Gentile section of the temple, the outer court, but he was never allowed to enter into the, the inner courts. And so maybe he attended a synagogue. He knew of the God of the Old Testament. He prayed, he gave, he was generous. But all of his knowledge and his actions were were insufficient. He needed to know. He needed to hear a full disclosure of the gospel of Jesus, what Jesus had done for him. And that is why Peter had to come. And Peter had to preach. And Peter had to explain. It's a good reminder to us, is it not, of the need, of the necessity to go. It is not good enough. Ignorance is not bliss when it comes to the good news of Jesus. And so Peter, in a moment that God has orchestrated, is called to come and to preach, to proclaim the good news. But Peter has a hurdle. He has the hurdle of racial segregation to get over. For for up until this moment, almost exclusively, Peter has operated as a Jew who refused to associate with any other ethnic group other than his own people. And so he has this significant cultural and racial barrier that he needs to step over in order to come and be an agent of blessing. And we see him wrestling with this in these verses. Have a look at verse 28. And Peter said to them, so get this, he rocks up to this house. Cornelius has invited all his family and friends. And this is Peter's opening line. You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. Good start, Peter. Good start. But you, we, I mean, we know Peter has always just spoken his mind, has he not? And so he, he does the same thing again. And then he kind of makes up for it by saying this. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. And so here Peter is giving meaning to that vision he had, that, you know, the, that weird vision of the, the sheet from the four corners of the earth being lowered down and all kinds of animals in there, clean animals, unclean animals, and Peter hearing the instruction, kill, eat. And then he says, by no means. <coughs> by no means. Oh, gee. This is an early point of the sermon to lose a voice. By no means, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. And then the voice says, do not call anything unclean that I've called clean. And that happens three times. And so Peter here is saying that association with or eating a meal with or coming into the house of Cornelius will not defile him any more than eating a pork roll or a prawn kebab or whatever else. It will not defile him because he remembers what Jesus said. Remember, Jesus, when he's talking about clean and unclean foods, Jesus says, To his disciples, it's not what goes into the mouth that makes us unclean. It's what comes out of the heart. And then the editors add a little note in there saying, by this Jesus declared all foods clean. And so Peter applies that teaching and his vision to this circumstance. 
He said, association with these people does not make me unclean, does not defile me. It's interesting that um, it seems actually that God has been preparing Peter for this moment. Because Peter has been staying in Joppa with a man called Simon, who is what? A tanner, a leather tanner. Someone who stains and prepares leather for sale, for use of whatever they used it for. But that meant that Simon was in contact with animal carcasses, which would have made him ceremonially unclean. It would have made his house unclean. And yet Peter is staying with him. And so it seems here there is this kind of overlap where Peter is beginning to understand the full implications and live out the implications of the gospel and the freedom that he has from the law. And so Peter has to step over this hurdle of racial segregation that he has lived by. And he sees the implications of the gospel that people are included now by faith, by faith in Jesus. And so as Peter rocks up, there's a crowd. Cornelius has gathered all his friends and his family and they're waiting and they're expectant. And he says, you know, they, they say, we're gathered here in the presence of God to hear what God has told you to say to us. I mean, that's every preacher's dream to have a crowd that's like leaning in and hungry for the word. And so as Peter comes into the house, he's given an opportunity. What does he do? He preaches. He preaches. That's exactly right. It's what happens time and time again when people are given an opportunity for the gospel. They preach. They speak it. And we're called to do the same. But this is what Peter says in verse 39. And we are witnesses of all that Jesus did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people And to testify that Jesus is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes, everyone who believes in him, receives forgiveness of sins through his name. I need to stop yelling. Otherwise, we're not going to get through this sermon. I mean, what a sermon, right? Jesus-centered cross-focused, resurrection, spotlighting, grace-saturated, forgiveness offering. What a beautiful sermon that Peter preaches to the house of Cornelius. It's the same gospel that he has spoken to every other people group. And then a crazy moment happens. As Peter is preaching the gospel, the Holy Spirit is given to the Gentiles. Literally, as he's speaking... The Spirit falls on his hearers and we know because there is a physical manifestation of the evidence of the invisible Spirit. In this case, it is the speaking of tongues. Now, why is that significant? It's significant because that is the very same thing that happened in Acts chapter 2 when the apostles themselves received the Holy Spirit, that they spoke in other languages. It's potentially what happened in Acts chapter 8 as the Samaritans heard the gospel, and received the Holy Spirit. This is significant. And the Jewish Christians, it says there in verse 45, 
those who were with Peter who were of the believers from the circumcision, that is, they were Jewish Christians, they were astonished. They were amazed at what they were seeing because they had just witnessed the gospel being preached and the Spirit being poured out on Gentiles. So significant is this moment in the story of Acts that some theologians have called this the Gentile Pentecost. The Gentile Pentecost, the same moment that God's people experienced in Acts chapter 2 has been what the Samaritans experienced in chapter 8 and what the Gentiles experienced in chapter 10. They have been included. And so convinced is Peter that he calls for baptism. He calls for water to baptize these new believers. They've received the inward baptism of the Spirit, the regeneration of their hearts. And he says, why, why, how can we withhold water baptism, the outward symbol of the inner reality that's happened for them? And so they call them and they baptism, they baptize them. Just imagine the, the joy, the wonder, the celebration, the tears, the unity that would have been encountered in that moment as Peter, for the very first time, baptized a Gentile. That's innovative. If you want to talk about innovation and church planting, that is innovative. No one baptized the Gentiles. But Peter takes Cornelius and his family and his household and he baptizes them, symbolizing the work that God had done in their hearts and in their lives. But you guessed it. There's criticism that comes. As soon as a certain conscientious group from amongst the Jewish Christians find out that the Gentiles have received the gospel, they begin to get a bit frustrated, a bit agitated. And so as Peter returns, he is called to explain himself and his actions. And in chapter 11... Really, it's Peter recounting the story from his perspective of what has happened as the gospel has gone to the Gentiles. Now, Peter gets it right in this moment, but he doesn't always get it right. He doesn't always get it right because it seems that at least for Peter and some of the others that old habits tend to die hard because in Galatians 2, Paul recalls a moment where he has had to go to Peter and call him out on his sin for separating himself and eating purely with the Jews and not eating with the Gentiles for fear of this circumcision group. And Paul calls him out and says, you are denying the gospel that you preach, brother. This separation cannot cannot exist amongst the people of God because Jesus has destroyed the dividing wall of hostility and joined us and made us one person, one nation, one new people. And for me, that's a bit of an evidence of the authenticity of the story of the gospel. Right? If you're trying to write a story and make people believe it, you, you, you leave out the bad bits. right? But here, this is just how it happened. Peter messed up. He made a mistake. He regressed. But there is forgiveness and grace and mercy for our apostle. But you see here the early church wrestling with the implications of the gospel and what it meant for the inclusion of the nations into God's family. But here at least, there is a moment of celebration. The church does it right. As Cornelius and his house are baptized and come to faith in Jesus, they recognize 
that here is a powerful work of God. This is what it says in chapter 11, verse 17. If then God gave the same gift, that is the spirit with the evidence of tongues, to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I, Peter, that I could stand in God's way? And when the church heard these things, they fell silent. That is, their accusations, their complaints ceased. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Peter's comments here demonstrate that that promise in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that the good news would go out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, that that promise will take place. Indeed, it has taken place here in Acts chapter 10. And really from this moment, Peter begins to fade out from the, from the narrative. By chapter 13, he's almost entirely gone. And Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, begins to feature and take over as the Gentile mission begins to take place. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> you know, in um, Australia, we have a checkered history and past with racial segregation. In fact, we had a number of laws and policies that collectively were called the White Australia Policy that prevented immigrants from uh, any, any, really anywhere outside of non-European immigration was, was banned. And particularly the, um, the gold mines in Queensland wanted to ban immigration from China and from the Polynesian islands because they didn't want cheap labor coming in. They didn't want people coming in and, and, and working on the gold fields and taking all their money. And so there were these policies that on the basis of the color of your skin, the country you were born in, your ethnicity, you were excluded from immigration into Australia. Now from 1946 to 66, successive governments sought to dismantle some of those laws. And then in 75, the Whitlam government introduced anti-discrimination laws into our immigration policy that meant you could no longer discriminate on a person's ethnicity or their race in terms of a decision for them to immigrate into Australia. And so our white Australia policy ceased and immigration began to flood in from all, all over the world. All sorts of non-European backgrounds, particularly China, began to move and immigrate to Australia. And we began to see this new vision of a multicultural society a multicultural Australia, and we began to enjoy the benefits of a multicultural Australia. In fact, today, 50% of Australians were either themselves born overseas or have a parent who was born overseas. 50% of our country. And yet, we still tend to clump together racially, don't we? I'm going to throw a few suburbs at you, and I want to tell you which ethnicity is associated with that suburb, all right? Bit of call and response. Cabramatta. Yeah, Vietnamese, Asian. Um, Bankstown. Yeah, the Lebanese, the Lebos in, in Bankstown. What about Leichhardt? The Italians. What about Blacktown? Yeah, the Philos and the uh, Sudanese refugees. And who else? The Pol Yeah, the Islanders. Yes, the Islanders in, in Blacktown as well. What about Auburn? The Turkish, the Lebanese, the Muslims. What about Harris Park? 
the Indians, the Tamils, right? And so you look across our city and you just see racial clumping all over the place. What about the North Shore, the Hills and the Shire? Yeah, the Aussies, the Anglos, right? I mean, we're all Aussies. Let's, let's be serious. We're all Aussies, but uh, yeah, the Anglos, right? In the Bible Belt, the North Shore, the Hills and the Shire. So as, as Australia, as a culture, how do we fulfill a vision for a multicultural society that doesn't divide along racial backgrounds? Well, in some senses, we've been able to do that. But really, what we're just doing is living next to each other in our suburbs and working next to each other. And then we go home to eat our traditional foods in our traditional language with our families and our culture. What hope is there? What hope is there for a world that experiences such racial division and segregation? Maybe no longer in the form of government policy, but in the reality of the relationships that we experience. What hope is there? Well, I want to suggest to you that, that only the good news of Jesus, only the good news of the message of the gospel can create such a culture. Because all people irrespective of background or race or language, are sinful. And in the gospel, all people, irrespective of goodness or tribe or language or tongue, are justified by faith in the name of Jesus. Grace is the only true leveler. Grace removes any sense of superiority. Grace removes all sense of racial supremacy. Grace It is the most powerful truth known to humanity. Grace. Nothing disrupts division and disunity like grace. Nothing tears down walls like grace. And you know, God is so committed to that vision of Revelation 5 and 7 of all the languages and peoples of this earth worshipping him. He is so committed to that. He is so faithful to his promises of Genesis 12, 3 and 22, 18. He is so committed to that that he would send Jesus to die on the cross to shed his blood. To call all the nations to worship him. He has given the ultimate sacrifice of his son. And so who are we to put the walls back up when Jesus has brought them down with his scandalous, outrageous message of grace? That we all come to Jesus on equal terms, sinners in desperate need of his mercy and his love and his goodness. And so I want to pause here and ask if you're here today and thinking to yourself, Is this good news for me? Is the Christian hope for me? I want to say categorically the answer is yes, it is. And it doesn't matter the color of your skin. It doesn't matter the country you were born in. It doesn't matter the language that you speak at home. It doesn't matter your racial or ethnic background. We are all justified by faith in Jesus, by faith in his name. The good news of forgiveness of sins is for you, for every single one of you in this room. And so I want to ask you, have you trusted in Jesus? Have you trusted in the one who can offer forgiveness? 
And maybe you find yourself seeking God. Maybe you would put yourself or identify with Cornelius, someone who is seeking God, who is interested in Jesus. Maybe even you feel like God is stalking you and seeking you out, just like he was with Cornelius. You know, I've got a a, a friend of mine, Nick, who came to faith in, he was a year or two below me at school, and he, he tells the story of how he felt like God was stalking him. He was in this friendship group and all of a sudden a number of his friends started to become Christians and then his girlfriend became a Christian and started inviting him to church and he wound up on this Christian youth camp. Even the music he was listening to, he was listening to a lot of Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds and he had a lot of these themes of grace and redemption flowing through his music and he just felt like God was stalking him and hounding him with this message of grace to the point where he gave his life to Jesus. Maybe you feel like that. Maybe you feel like you are searching and seeking and God is just slowly pulling you in. Maybe even today, God is speaking to you. It's not enough just to know about God like Cornelius did. You need a revelation of Jesus, of what he has done, of the full gospel of his life, death and resurrection, of this gospel, that Jesus lived the perfect life that you could not possibly hope to live, that Jesus died the death that you deserve, taking your punishment and your place, that great exchange, that substitution, that Jesus rose on the third day, conquering the power of sin and death, rising to new life, offering hope, that Jesus has ascended to the Father's right hand where right now he rules and reigns and that Jesus has promised to come back and to judge the nations with justice and truth and that Jesus promises to forgive anyone, anyone, anyone who has faith in his name. Anyone from any Country, tribe, nation, language, tongue. If you're here today and you feel stuck in your brokenness and weighed down by your guilt, there is forgiveness in Jesus. He wants to set you free. He wants to reconcile you to the Father. And that is on offer to you, not because you've achieved anything, not because of your heritage and bloodline, but because of the precious blood of Jesus shed for you. But what does this mean for us as a church? And I think there's a whole bunch of implications from this, but I particularly want to draw out two from this. And the first is, oh gee, the first is that the church is transcultural. The church is transcultural. I steal that term from Leonce Crump, who's part of our 829 family. The church is made up of all different ethnicities. You know, almost every other world religion predominantly, although not exclusively, predominantly is centered around a specific ethnic group of people. The gospel calls all people in from every nation. And the church celebrates the fact that Jesus' blood brings us together and that is stronger than any difference that we experience. And that reality ought to scream to a world that is divided, that Jesus does change lives, that Jesus does create family. I love the fact that we've got all sorts of different ethnic backgrounds in our church. Here we go. Tongans, Philo, Chinese, Canadian, American, Greek, Puerto Rican, Indonesian, South African, Iraqi, Kiwi, Fijian, Indian, Korean, Vietnamese, Italian, Costa Rican, Norwegian, and probably a whole bunch of others that I've forgotten. 
just in our little church community. That is an expression of what God has been doing since the foundation of the world through Jesus to draw all people to himself. And it's not just that we're in the same place at the same time. You do that when you go to work. It's that this truly is family. That we sit down at a meal and at a table and eat a meal together. That we express the very thing that draws us together is more significant than anything that separates us. So the first thing is that the church ought to be transcultural, that it transcends. In fact, it actually creates a brand new culture, the people of God. The second thing is that, and this blew me away this week, is that God is already working in the hearts of people far away. The thing that blew me away is that God had been working in Cornelius's heart even though he was geographically far away from God, spiritually far away from God, that the Spirit is preparing people to hear the message and that he uses us as his means of calling the people of the nations to himself. You know, the Spirit is already prompting people. He is already working in people's hearts, your colleagues, your family, your friends, your neighbours. He is working in them to prepare them for a message that you will bring, a message of hope, a message of a Christ who calls all people to himself. And that reality ought to fill us with confidence and expectation that Jesus is working, that the Spirit is guiding the mission and calling people to himself and that we, that you, have a part to play. Let me quickly close with this story. This is a a beautiful story I read from uh, a book this week called Let the Nations Be Glad. And it says this, there is a a particular tribal group in the the south of Ethiopia, Ethiopia, and I'm not sure if I'm going to pronounce this right, called the Gideo people. And they believed in a um, creative being, uh, a being who created all things, and his name was Magano. But they didn't worship him. Instead, they spent all of their time appeasing an evil spirit. And one man of the Gideo tribe, his name was Warasa Waranga. Wara, sorry, Warasa Wanga. He was from a town called Dilla in Ethiopia. And he had a vision of two white-skinned strangers who came and built these shiny-roofed structures just on the outside of Dilla. And um, he heard a voice saying to him, these men bring a message from Magano, the God you seek. And the last scene that Warasa saw was a picture of him, a vision of him taking the center pole from his house and carrying it out and placing it next to the shiny roof structures of the white-skinned people. Now, the center pole stood for your very life in the Gadea culture. Eight years later, two Canadian missionaries in 1948 began a mission work They wanted to establish their missionary center in the heart of the Gideo people. But they were advised that if they requested that, it would be denied. Instead, they should request to build their their HQ on the outside of the tribal group, just on the outside of Dilla. And so they did. And this man, um, what's his name again? Warasa. He was one of the first converts to Christianity. He was one of the first people to be imprisoned for preaching the gospel. And 30 years later, 200 churches existed in in amongst the Gideo people of more than 200 people each. This is the God 
who has been working in Acts chapter 10 to draw the nations to himself. This is the God who in 1950 worked amongst the tribal people of the Gideo of the south of Ethiopia to draw the nations to himself. This is the God who is drawing the nations of Australia to himself to worship Jesus. And all people are included by faith in his name. And the reality is, so are you. So are you. Irrespective of your background, irrespective of your language, irrespective of your skin color, you have been included by faith in Jesus. And this, is a, this church is a beautiful tapestry and mosaic of the work of the gospel. So church, let us be who Jesus calls us to be as we live in community, as we live as a family of missionaries that screams to a divided world. The gospel transforms lives and calls all people together to worship Jesus. We're going to respond to this great God now in three ways. We're going to respond in prayer. Our prayer team are going to be to the sides wearing orange lanyards. They would love to pray for you. If you'd like to receive Jesus this morning, if you have any prayer requests, please go to them. We're going to respond by celebrating the Lord's Supper together. This meal is a demonstration of our unity that we together have been called to follow Jesus. And so as you come forward and dip the bread into the grape juice, those of you who love Jesus, who follow him, do that remembering that he has called us as family. And finally, we're going to respond by worshiping our great God in song. So I'm going to invite you to stand as I pray and we respond to this good God now. So let's pray together, church. Jesus, we thank you that you are in the business of transforming lives. God, we thank you that you have had a plan and a purpose to call all the peoples of this earth to worship you. And you've been working that plan out from the very beginning. And you've been working that plan out through the blood of Jesus, the good news of the gospel, that we would be included in your story. God, we want to worship you and celebrate you for that and pray that you would help us to be your people that screams to this divided world, this divided city of ours, that there is hope that this vision of a transcultural people is only realized in the good news of the gospel. Help us to be your people that shine that light for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. God's people said, Amen.